All right. Good morning. Good to see everyone. You ready to get into the Word of God? Yeah, let's do it. Take out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one under the seat in front of you. We're going to be in John chapter 10 today. John chapter 10, verse 1. If you need a little bit of help getting there, it's page 896 in the Bible under the seat in front of you. 896. We're going to need the full time to be able to go through the passage uh, that we have before us. We're in part 51 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Insider Information, and so I'd like to welcome everybody watching online. Hi to you. Make sure to keep the game down and us up. All right, praise God. Fantastic. Uh, a couple things as we begin, just a real quick a show of hands, because I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank in one moment. Uh, quick show of hands. How many of you had the opportunity to go to Disneyland with your parents when you were a child? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, good. So there's quite a few of you. Isn't it amazing that in a busy place with tons of parents and tons of kids, you are able to discern your parents' voice in the crowd, especially when you're in trouble? Yes? Absolutely. Uh, Another analogy. Let's say that you are a couple that has young kids, and you know that when you hang out with other couples that have little kids, uh, a lot of times they go away to play. A lot of times they'll go upstairs to play, and inevitably one of them gets hurt, and they begin to cry, and you all know what happens, right? All the moms look at each other and they go, that one's yours, right? They're looking at each, they they all know the instant, the sound of the cry. They know who it was. They know what was going on. Just ladies, just so you know, all the guys that look at each other going, is that mine? Is that yours? Is that, I have no idea, right? So we're all pretty clueless. So our wives are slowly training us. And even, it's not that you even know the pitch of voice, it's the tone of it. And here's what I mean. Imagine if you are in bed, you're, you're married, you're in bed, it's midnight, your spouse is there, and all of a sudden someone comes to the front door. And you call downstairs like, hello? Like, uh, is this an intruder? Even if your spouse has, you know, like a cold and their voice is totally changed, like 12 octaves lower, it's your wife and she's like, you know, that kind of thing. Right? If you say hello and she's like, yeah, I'm all good, right? You still know by her response and the pattern of how she talks that it's safe and that's who she is. You don't even have to have the same vocal tone, I mean the same vocal pitch or inflection. What I'm saying is that we are so good at pinging on different voices and knowing who is near us, who is close to us, who is important to us. The reason why I bring that up is Jesus is about to do uh, an extraordinary teaching on what it means for sheep to know the voice of the shepherd. And what I want to be very clear on is telling you what I mean and what I don't mean. Let's begin with the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It is this. God knows his and they know him. God knows his and they know him. What does that mean? It means that God's kids know his voice. And what I do mean by that is, do you know what God generally talks about? Do you know what he likes and what he doesn't like? Do you know what things he would never say? Do you kind of know his interests? Do you kind of know the patterns of his speaking? What I do not mean is, are you always getting an audible response in prayer? All right? So I got to be very clear on that. Because I don't believe that that is a norm for everybody. Now, there are some of you in this room with us, 
you do get to interact with God and he gives you such clear impressions on your heart. It's as if he was just verbally talking to you and your prayer life is very vibrant and alive. Man, I'm jealous. Uh, cause that's not the, the, that's not how it is for all of us. I'll give me a, give me an example. Yesterday morning, 6.40 a.m., I wake up, right? Total miracle right there because I don't get up at 6.40 in the morning. 6.40 in the morning, I wake up, first thought in my head, and it was just a thought. There was no other tone to it. I, this thought pops in my head, if you go downstairs, I will speak to you. Now, that's a trip, right? Why in the world are I thinking that? I mean, I've been praying a ton lately about an increase in connection with God through prayer. Because what I'm really good at is like intercession. I can pray for other people. I can pray for things. I'm really good at praying for needs. I'm really good at uh, praying through scripture. Uh, there's a bunch of ways that I know how to pray. What I'm not great at is listening. I mean, I'll give you like 30 seconds of silence and I'm ready to go again, right? I'm ready to start talking all over again. The awkwardness of silence and kind of going, am I waiting for something? Is my expectation wrong? Like God's like, no, I don't have anything. Go ahead. You know, I'd hate to just be sitting there and, uh, and, and God never had any intention of speaking. So I've been trying to grow in that. And I, I really feel like, Lord, I really want your affirmation as your child, because I get affirmation through the word, I get affirmation through other believers, but I don't get a lot of direct affirmation, and that's the only stuff that matters to me. I gotta hear it from God's lips, that he's good with me. It doesn't matter what y'all think, right? It matters what he thinks, and, and that's kind of what ministers to my soul. So, I've really been trying to grow in that, so maybe, it was just that I was thinking about that already, and I woke up, and that thought popped into my mind. But the next thought that came to my mind was, what if it is God? Can I even remain in bed if it's really God? I don't want to be here. I want to be down there. Now, I don't want to get up. Trust me. <laughs> that, that's a terrible idea. I wanted to remain in bed. But I got up and I went downstairs. Because if there was just a chance that God was trying to talk to me, I wanted to be down there. And if he was going to give me some type of breakthrough or understanding or, or hearing him, I was like, I want to be there. So whenever I go down to pray early in the morning, I hate being cold. So I always grab a blanket and I put it over my shoulder, similar to Dracula, like a big cape, right? And I make big sweeping moves like this when I go around corners and stuff. It's not important. Then what I do is I take the blanket and I lift it over my head to block out distractions and I lay face down on the rug. And then I kind of try to figure out how do you smash your face? Do you smash it this way or this way or this? So I'm moving around a lot and I kind of have my hands out and I will just lay before God. And normally it's a lot of, you know, praying or worshiping or whatever. So I did a little bit of that, but then it dawned on me. He's the one that asked for the meeting. I didn't bring it up, so I'm not, I don't have to bring anything to the table. You're the one that called me downstairs. You obviously have something that you want to say. So I thought, I'm going to really try to listen for the voice of God. I was down there for approximately an hour and a half. Nothing. Complete silence. Never got anything from God. I got up, went about my day. And I was like, dang, that was disappointing. Like, I mean, I thought I just got woke up. I think that was God. And, and, and really, I'm left with a couple options, right? It could have been that God was going, all right, you passed the test. I appreciate that. That was an obedience test. Good job. Or it could have been, what I mean is, if you continue to meet with me, you'll hear my voice. I didn't say today. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what, I don't know what he was saying. All I know is nothing showed up. 
So what I'm not saying to you is, man, you got to feel guilty unless you're hearing God all the time and it's all this rich two-way community. I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is. I know what it is to not feel like there's an intimacy in, in your prayer time. I, I know what all that's like. I'm not trying to tell you that. What I'm trying to tell you is that if anybody ever comes to me and they said, hey, man, I got a word from the Lord that I, that I just wanted to share with you. Maybe it's about you. I immediately can tell after what they say, whether it's the tenor of God or not. Man, I have read so much scripture and I've so talked to them. I've gone through bad times with them. I've gone through good times with them. Man, I got about 13 different alarm systems for anything anyone ever says is from God, right? I mean, the minute you mention God in the subject, I immediately know whether or not that's really from my dad or not. I know my dad's voice. I know what he's saying. I know what he wouldn't say. If you ever, if you ever got something that somebody said, man, I really feel like uh, God was telling me that, you know, man, your marriage is miserable. You should get a divorce. And they're like, yeah, that was from God. An alarm should spring off and go, no, you moron. That is not what God said. Because that's not his groove. That's not what he says. That goes contrary to his word. My point is, is there any intimacy to where you know what God's into? Do you have a personal enough relationship to enjoy what he enjoys and hate what he hates? Do you have kind of the same heart? Do you have kind of that personal connection? Because God says that is critical for the life of the believer. And that's supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because I don't think we have it very much. I know I don't have it to the degree that I need to have it. And so I'm about to get busted by Jesus. Here's how it begins. If you remember last week... We had Pastor Brian Kiley, who was here a moment ago. Uh, he taught us about the man that was born blind and was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. Did he not do a great job? I mean, that guy's phenomenal, yeah? He's an extraordinary teacher. And so I always know that, man, the, the folks that I have behind me, they're, they're top notch. And so I always feel comfortable when I'm gone that you're in good hands. So he began to teach you about, I mean, just the creepy miracle of spitting in the dirt and making mud and putting it on the guy's eyes and go wash and all that crazy stuff. What happened on the Sabbath and it caused a controversy, right? The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they give this guy heat because he got healed on the wrong day by the wrong guy. That was their big problem. And, and you kind of go, what? Why are you getting mad because he got healed by, well, they're like, who healed you? And he's like, well, I think it was that Jesus guy. I couldn't see him, get it? But later on, he came to me and told me he was the Messiah. I totally got saved. So this guy, he healed me. And they're like, no, that guy's not legit. He's bogus. And they're like, well, I don't know what you think about him. I was blind and now I can see. That's all I know, all right? So you all can figure out your theological problems later on. Well, they ended up kicking him out of the synagogue. They kicked him out of church. They kicked him out of his culture. They kicked him out of his community because he was healed by the wrong person on the wrong day. Jesus is going to ping off that and begin another set of teaching that's similar to what he's been teaching before, where he said things like, uh, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water. I'm what, uh, the light of the world. I mean, he's been sharing all these big, deep statements. He's about to give you a couple more. And that's why John puts them all in the same group. But really, he's also pinging off that bad leadership that was going on with the religious leaders that would dare kick a man out for not doing it right. This is where we pick it up. John chapter 10, verse 1 begins with the phrase, listen up, this is deep. Y'all know that truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, like over the walls, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door, now that's the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. All right, I'm going to give you a lot of background on shepherding, more than you ever wanted to know. I'll talk to you about how the Jewish kind of shepherds worked, so you can have a context. This is village shepherding. Why? Because we're talking about a communal sheepfold. The way that it would work is this. If you did not have a lot of money and you were not really a sheep raising farm, you only needed one or two for your family. Unlike other cultures that raise sheep for slaughter, in general, the ancient Middle Eastern Jewish culture raised them for wool, raised them for milk, and they raised them for little baby sheep. Okay? When you have that, You don't need a ton of them if it's just your little poor family. You can't afford that. You certainly can't afford to build some huge enclosure on property you don't own. So you kind of do the co-op thing. There is a village general area where everybody kind of brings their sheep in. They all mix them together. And there is gatekeeper guy. Now, gatekeeper guy is security guard. So in order to get your sheep out, you got to have a pin number, that kind of thing, right? If he knows that you're legit, he'll open the door for you. If he does not recognize you, you're not getting any sheep out today. That's what Jesus is referring to. He says right here, if you're getting in through the gate and the guy knows you, you're legit. If you have to crawl in to get your sheep out, you're a bad guy. Now, shepherding in general... In this ancient world, and even now today, it was a pretty dangerous job, right? I mean, it was hard because you were in constant vigilance. You basically, your job was to babysit stupid things. That's your job. So at all times, there was dangers out there. There's, there's, and I was writing down predators, starvation, getting lost, disease, harming one another, all this stuff because the little sheep don't have a clue how to take care of themselves. So they're always wandering around getting into trouble. And when you went out and shepherded, you would take them from your little home area out into the open area to get them fed. And then you bring them back home at night. Unless it was warm, you'd stay out overnight. So you got to travel light. So basically they had four items. They had their food bag for themselves. And that could have been what? Like a bread, a little bit of bread, dried fruit, cheese, olives, something like that. They'd have their little bag. And then they would have a sling. Now we think of the sling as in the David and Goliath sling, which is exactly what we're talking about. The Bible says that when David faced Goliath, he reflects on how he handled stuff as a shepherd. And he's like, man... That one time that lion came in, that one time that bear came in, I was like, not today, buddy. And I was like, you know, and I I could knock them out. I mean, they're good at it. Why? Because you're bored out of your gorge standing there in the middle of nowhere watching little fluffy things eat things. So all you're doing is just getting better and better at hitting the bullseye with your sling. So they're very good. But one commentary was saying, you know, in observing the shepherds, they don't just use it for defense. They use it for guidance. Because here's how it works. Let's say you had all your little sheep, and let's say you're watching a little herd of them, and Blarney, the sheep, decides to take off and go towards the cliff. Now, Blarney has no clue that he's walking towards the cliff. He's just interested in going, hmm, there's something else yummy. Hmm, there's something else yummy. And he's just wandering off. He has no clue. you got to get his attention. You throw a rock into your sling, you go, and you throw it right in front of his nose. Bam, it hits him. He's like, whoa, hey, what's going on? What's going on? You're like, Blarney, get back in line. He's like, oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. And he comes back in. 
the shepherding business, you also have a rod and a staff, right? And every time I read about these, I always get them mixed up, which is the rod and which is the staff. Who cares? Here's what happens. You got a club that beats things, right? And that club, in the modern day, it's it's kind of w- more like a, a, a heavier end, a wooden end, and actually has nails sticking out of it. This is like, we're going to town. This is This is death. If this any wolf comes up, I will tear that thing apart, right? Or if bad guys come up, I will defend, and I have a weapon that can kill. Because it's very, you're not only babysitting dumb things, you're babysitting walking money. If anyone steals it, they can get sell it for money or they can get stuff. You're, you're have money out there in the field. And if you don't look like you can handle yourself, somebody's going to try to rip you off. So you have a club that you can defend with. And then you have the stick that helps guide and move around. And when they come in at night, you kind of run it along their wool, right? You're checking for pests. Were they injured? Uh, do they have any type of diseases? You're examining them. You're steering them. You're shepherding is not an easy task. Boring, but you have to be constantly vigilant. All right, let's keep moving on. The sheep, Jesus said in verse 3, hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Very similar to church. (laughs) Understand that if you are going to shepherd for wool, you want your lambs well taken care of. You don't need messy, nasty wool. You want good wool because you're going to use that for your own stuff. If you want them for little baby lambs, you want them healthy and strong. If you want them for milk, you want their quality to be high. So you are wanting them to live for decades. This is not a, oh man, it's just my little shit. This is, I only have a couple of them and these better be awesome. Because I don't have a whole lot of money to replace them. So I'm going to put so much effort into them and make sure that they're good. How do they not become pets? You are with them every day. Now, some of you are not animal people. I get it. Some people are cursed. I, that I understand, all right? Now, now, people like me, I got a curse on the other side. I'm a little too obsessed with animals, right? I think that all animals have families and jobs and all that. You know, I was raised on Disney, and, and so, so I assume that there's this whole other world going on. We're not looking. If you're watching an animal and you're taking care of it all the time and you have, you go through difficult times and nervous, you have a bond with this animal. So what happens is they name them individually because when they go to the community sheepfold, they got to get theirs out with all the other ones coming out. So what ends up happening is you're like, Hey, Nemo, Blarney, get over here. And you call them out and they're like, Ooh, that's my person. And then they all get excited and they run out. And all the other sheep are like, can't hear anything. Can't hear anything. Can't hear anything. Can't hear anything. Cause they're waiting for their guy to talk their language. Right. And so they, they just blow all the rest of it off. They don't even care, but you call out your little guys and then you move out and they shut the door. The other thing is that in a lot of shepherding that goes on uh, in other countries, there's a lot of more of a herding mentality. You go behind them, you maybe send dogs around the side to be able to corral it, but you basically chase them forward. Yeah, come on, let's keep moving. Go, 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 go. In the ancient Middle East, they led. They would go first and the little ones like pets would follow after them. So they'd turn around, hey, guys, keep up, keep up, right? And if they need to sling and get them moving... 
But they're calling him. He even said, as you observe the shepherd, he will call out periodically just to make the sheep at peace that he's still around. So he'll do a little, you know, and the little sheep are like, yeah, that's my person. He's got me covered. And they're just eating their thing because they have their head down, right? But if someone else goes, hey, what's going on? Their heads go up like what? Like something's wrong. We're on alert. But the shepherd, he can call them by name and they all know his voice. Verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, listen up, this is deep. I'm the door of the sheep. All who come before me, those guys that have claimed to be Messiah. No, they're thieves and robbers. But true Israel, my sheep, they didn't listen to him. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And that means uh, delivered, safe and secure. He will go in and out. That's a Jewish way of saying he has total peace in his life because he can go out, he can come in, he can do whatever he needs to do, and he's covered and protected. And he will find pasture. He will be provided for and taken care of. Now the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just eking out an existence, but a super abundance of blessing that comes up and rises up out of them. I have come that they might be peaceful. I have come that they might be joyful. I have come that they might be filled up with love and affirmation. I have come that they might know their identity in me. I have come that they might have purpose and meaning and value. I didn't come to rip them off. I came to make them live, right? Now we know that he just shifted metaphors because he said, I'm the door. You go, the door, what does that mean? Well, when you're in the community area, we have that sheepfold, we have the watchkeeper, we have the, the door. But when you're out in the wide open field, there are no doors. Why? Because there's so much use and it's out in the middle of nowhere that it's always going to fall apart and break anyway. Like, for example, have you ever been, and, and it's a little different now, but remember back in the day when you would go to a rest area bathroom? And there's like no doors and there's not, maybe that didn't happen in the women's room. It happened in the guys' room. There's no doors. They'd already been ripped off their hinges and they were tired of replacing them. And, and then eventually you go to a bathroom by the beach and all they have is like a metal sheet for your mirror, you know, and it's like, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't see myself in that thing. So they don't want to put anything fancy where it's all going to get broken. So there's nothing fancy out in the wide open country. All you have is a semicircle rock wall. Because the rocks will stay out there and they won't fall apart. Somebody built that knowing that they needed the area, but anyone can use it. So what you do is you come in in the evening and you gather all your little guys, right? Nemo and Blarney and all those guys. And you scoot them in there and you lay down at the entrance. You're the door. Why? Because a little sheep can't get out without waking you up. They're not smart enough, like, dun, 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 you know, you know, and they're, they're going over the wall. They're just, they're just kind of like, oh, sorry. You know, and they run into you and you're like, hey, get back to sleep. You are the door. You're the guard, not just so, so they don't get out, but you're guarding so the bad guys don't get in. Okay. Now, right here, this is where if you've been in the church for any length of time, all these thoughts erupt in your head, right? Why? What are the, what are the thoughts? He's talking about the cross. 
He laid down his life for us that he would protect us and that he would shield us and nobody bad can get in. And he's the one that would lay down his own body in danger for us to be safe. I mean, all these different messages, you know, that you've heard throughout the years about about how Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. All that should be coming into your mind. Jesus said in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. There are a lot of shepherds out there. I'm the good one. Now, this is important because the word good doesn't just mean morally good. It means attractive, beautiful, winsome, lovely. I'm the shepherd that you are proud of. I'm the shepherd that all the sheep are like. Do you see my person? He's awesome. My person can beat up your person. That kind of guy. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. Sees a wolf come and leaves the sheep, flees. The wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He doesn't care anything for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Right off the bat, the Jews would be thinking of something when he says he's a good shepherd. I mean, immediately they got to think Psalm 23, yeah? I mean, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know all the little keys in there. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, all that, that all comes flooding back in their mind. They're like, yeah, you're talking about God. So God is our good shepherd. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm your good shepherd. But it wasn't just God. There was actually more to it. The Messiah was called to be a good shepherd. Any leaders of Israel were called to be good shepherds. King David was supposed to be a good shepherd. The priests were supposed to be good shepherds. The Pharisees were supposed to be good shepherds. But they just kicked a guy out because he didn't do what they wanted. They're not good shepherds. And this is where Jesus is pinging back and going, I'm not like them. I've had a lot of bad leadership. I'm not like that. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that you want to follow. I'm the one that you want to be with. Then what would happen was, he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, that guy bails out. Why? If you're making minimum wage and here comes a hyena... You're like, see ya, you know, you're, you're gone going, that ain't worth my eight bucks, right? But if that's your only sheep, that's what makes your family run. You own that, you know it by name, and you've been hanging with that sheep for 15 years. Nobody's touching that thing. You're so personal about it. And so you will stand up and not today, buddy, right? You're just going to get in front of whatever that is. You're going to scare it away. You're going to bring out your club. If anyone tries to steal your stuff, it's now personal. And so now you're going to put up this huge fight. And Jesus said, yeah, I take you guys very, very personal. We didn't deserve Jesus to die on the cross. We didn't, we didn't deserve for him to die for the sins of the world. We didn't deserve the forgiveness that we received. We didn't deserve the mercy, but his love wouldn't let him do anything else. He saw us in danger. He saw that we were going to die for our sins and be eternally separated from God. And he said, that's not going to happen on my watch. And so he dies on the cross that we might live. He said, yeah, I'm that kind of shepherd. All these other leaders that you've had that are all self-involved and they keep hurting you and they're doing their own things and they're obsessed with their own gain. They're the bad guys. 
I'm not a bad guy. I'm here to bless you. Now, when he talks about the whole running away, do you understand the shepherd was absolutely responsible for the sheep? If you didn't come home with the same amount of sheep that you left with, you had to answer for it. And how do they know that you didn't sell it for profit? You had to provide proof of life. You had to bring back a bit of an ear, legs. Why? Because you had to prove you didn't sell it and it got tore up by an animal. And you had to show that to the owner. And Jesus is going, listen, I am so secure and I'm so protective. Nothing's going to happen to you. Let me just cite one other piece on this. Uh, One commentary said this line. I'll just leave it at that because I can't add to it and make it any better. He said this in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, the sheep died for the sake of the shepherd. Yet in the New Testament, in the new covenant, the shepherd died for the sake of the sheep. And that's just a brilliant turn of events. Verse 16, Jesus said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold that are not in Israel. I got to bring them in also and they'll listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who's he talking about? Us. <laughs> Gentiles, right? The only reason we're having church is because of that phrase, the, you know, those types of phrases is that there are non-Jews that need to be in the fold. So Jesus said, I will go get them. I die for them as well. They're going to be part of our team. And when they come in, we are one family. Do you understand? We don't have second class citizens. We don't have favoritism issues. We don't have, no, I don't really believe they're my brother and sister. Either they are or they aren't. See, the Jews had a major blind spot and the major blind spot was racism. And the reason why, in my opinion, is that The Jews throughout all of history have just had to deal with persecution after persecution after persecution and no one watches out for them but themselves. When you have to defend your own stuff and you get crushed by all the cultures around you and everyone wants you gone, you start getting very defensive about your thing. You start becoming very nationalistic, very Zionistic, very this is all about us and we don't care about the rest of the nations of the world. You know what? When our Messiah comes, we will crush you. And and you may be our slaves, but you're certainly never going to be equals with us. And you remember how they treated the Samaritans in their own land. They're like, you're a half-blood. You're not even a real Jew. And they gave them no credit, no respect, no love. So when Jesus came in, starts talking to the woman at the well, they're like, what are you doing talking to her? He's like, because I'm dying for her. I love her. That's why I'm talking to her. Kids, don't you get it? You're not even reading the Old Testament. You're not even understanding what my call was. I told your father Abraham from the beginning on the first day, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. That means it's not just about you. Don't you understand? You're my salt and light. My Jewish people, you're the ones that are supposed to tell the world how loving I am. You're supposed to be the ones that embrace everybody and tell them about the Messiah. So you need to do your job and stop saying, who cares about them? Who cares if they go to hell? When you're so busy defending yourself, there becomes this reverse racism, right? Because everyone's attacking you all the time. And God said, while you're being attacked, please do not let your heart become so hard that you forget that I died for them too. Verse 17, Jesus said, for this reason, the father loves me. Now that doesn't mean that he loves him. It means that he's bestowing blessing upon him. It means he's showing favor to him. For this reason, the father shows favor to me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. 
What does that mean? It means there is no room in anyone's theology to win. Oh, no, they caught Jesus. Now they're going to kill him and he can't get away. Jesus died because Jesus wanted to die. Nobody captures Jesus. There was not a, the Romans got him, oh, the Jews killed him. No, it was, I'm dying because I want to die that you might live. And not only that, but like any good pool player or billiard player, he called his shots before they ever happened. In pool, you go, I'm going to go off that bank, off that bank, into the side pocket, so no one thinks that you accidentally did that. Jesus said, I will die, I will raise, and I'll even give you time frames. It's going to be on the third day, I will rise up out of that, and the angels will move the rock out of my way. In other words, nobody kills Jesus. He's God. I die when I want to die. I get up when I want to get up. So let's be very clear on who I am. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Really? Shocker. Jews arguing. That's so odd. Verse 20. Many of them said, he has a demon. This guy's insane. Why are we even listening to him? And other people said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. What, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're wrestling about who Jesus is. Don't you understand that that's the big issue? I mean, that's the big division in all the religions of the world. That's the big divisions in all the religions that keep claiming the title Christian. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he? Well, he's a really nice guy. Yeah, I get it. He is a nice guy. He's God. Well, you know, he's kind of a God. No, he's a member of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Completely equal in essence, one God, three persons. That's how, well, you know what, I don't really, he's kind of, there's kind of one God, he's kind of a guy, he's a good prophet. No, he's God, and he's the only Savior. Well, he's one of the ways. No, he's not one of the ways. He's the only way. And that's where the division lines get drawn. What do you do with Jesus? All the other stuff's details. What do you do with Jesus? And so they were arguing about who he was. Verse 22, at that time, Oh, John just zoomed us two months ahead. Man, I hate when he does that. John gathers for topical, thematic elements, shoves them all together, gives a little indicator. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Last time we were talking, it was the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles, and that was in September, October. Now we're in November, December. We just slid forward two months. Jesus is still in the Jerusalem area. He's still going back and forth between the temple, and he shows back up to do more teaching. But what in the world is the Feast of Dedication? I mean, it's known by a lot of other names. Maybe these are more familiar. How about the Memorial of the Purification of the Temple? Yeah, anyone? No, of course not. What about Festival of the Dedication of the Altar? No, not that one either. Uh, what about the 25th of Krislev? No, not that one either. All right, it's also known as the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. How about that one? All right, now we're in. Hey, that's that little menorah thingy, right? Isn't that? Oh, that's their Christmas. Okay, don't say that to a Jew. That's just irritating. That it's like, shut your mouth. What are you talking about? Oh, that's your Christmas. What it is, it's an eight-day-long celebration similar to the festival of booths palm fronds singing the halal lighting ceremony all that kind of stuff but it's for a totally different reason let me tell you the story alexander the great mr greece himself wanted to have the whole world be greek in thought and in heart 
Well, when he dies, somebody's got to take on that mantle. For a long time, the family in Egypt called the Ptolemy family, that dynasty or that empire kind of moved Hellenization forward. Hellenization is the Greek thought being promoted. Well, eventually, at about 200 BC, they stop, and a Syrian family by the Seleucid name, the Seleucid Empire rises, they start pushing the Hellenization of the world. Well, a leader, a very nasty man came to power in the Seleucid Empire by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He wanted to make the whole Israel region Greek. So at first he tries to implement a bunch of different thoughts and ideas and thought the Jews would go for it. Well, he didn't realize Jews are rather stubborn. Jews are like, uh, no, we are not doing the Greek thing. We're kind of tied to our God. Thank you very much. They resisted him, so he got mad. So sure enough, in 170 BC, he attacked Jerusalem and killed 80,000 Jews, put a whole bunch more in slavery, stole money from the temple, outlawed any copy of the Old Testament law, outlawed any circumcision of children, which you know is the mark of a true Jew. If a woman circumcised her child, she was publicly hung and her child was hung around her neck to make sure no one would ever do that again. All the Jews had to sacrifice to uh, to pagan deities and all Judaism was outlawed. Then he did the unthinkable. He storms the temple and makes the temple courts of God a uh, prostitute house or a brothel. He then takes the great altar that was always sacrificed to God and he sacrifices a pig, which is non-kosher, to the god Zeus. In other words, he did everything he possibly could to defame and demoralize the Jewish people. Well, that kind of ticked the Jews off. So a family named the Maccabees, a priest by the name of Mattathias, sons of Judas Maccabees and his brother, they all scatter with their teams and their warrior guys. They go out into the wilderness and lead a guerrilla warfare attack against the Seleucid Empire. And it actually lasts a really long time. The full battle lasted from 166 BC to 142 BC. But one of their big wins happened up early. It was in 164 BC. They took the temple back. And when they got the temple, they then cleaned everything out, got all the old garbage out, took out all the old utensils, rebuilt the altar, brought in everything and started to purify it. They were going to light the seven candelabra that was in the holy place, but you can only light it with special oil that is blessed by the high priest and it's done a certain way. And this is where the tradition came in. It says that when they came in there, they found one vial, unopened oil that would last one day and it was still sealed with a signet ring of the high priest. And they knew it was legit, but it was only one day's worth and they would have to purify and make oil, but it would take eight days to make new oil. And they never wanted that light to go out. And so in prayer, they lit the candle and it lasted all eight days. That miracle is what they celebrate at Hanukkah. It's that we have freedom and deliverance. We had a miracle to back it up. And that was the last great deliverance we had because in Jesus's time, Rome had taken over. As a matter of fact, the Maccabean revolt got them free in 142 BC and they remained free until 63 BC just before Jesus and Rome took over. And once again, they're oppressed all over again. Whenever you see the menorah or the Hanukkah celebration, just understand that's a very rich tradition for the Jewish people. 
verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That's a place near the temple where you could gather when it was maybe rainy or when it was too sunny because it was an 80-foot pillars holding up a 46-foot span of cedar wood, a covered walkway where people would hang out and talk about God. As Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, some Jews encircled and closed in on him and said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? How long will you hold up our soul? They said, if you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Did they really want to know or was this a trap? Jesus answered them, I did tell you and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never die and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and the father are one in this. That one is neuter. It's not masculine. It means we are one in a thing, not we're the same person. Remember, Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three indistinct persons, one God. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. This is the third time in the book of John they're trying to throw rocks at Jesus to kill him. Jesus said, hold up, before you guys start throwing the rocks, I got a quick question for you. I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me for? That's a great question. The Jews answered him, it's not because of the good works you're doing that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, you make yourself God. They said, according to Leviticus 24, 16, we can throw rocks at you till you die. Jesus said, oh, we're playing that game. All right, hold on, hold on. He answered them, is it not written in your law in the Old Testament, specifically in Psalm 82, 6? It says, I said, you are gods, talking about people. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, there's no error in it, do you say of me, whom the Father consecrated, set apart for a special task, sent into the world in his own commission, you're saying I'm blaspheming because I said I'm a son of God? Here's his point. It's a rabbinic argument. doesn't make sense to us, but it's called the greater than argument. And here's what he's saying. Hold up. Before you try to stone me according to the law, let me point something out. In the book of Psalms, it says God is a true judge and all judges under him are sons of him carrying out his will. They're called Elohim. They're called sons of God. And if they're called sons of God and they're regular dudes, why are you throwing rocks at me? I don't care whether you think I'm the Messiah or not. You have no right, according to scripture, to stone me to death. That's a rabbinic argument. They all would have got it and they all would have went, dang, that's a great point. I so want to kill you right now, but I can't. He said, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe what I'm doing that you may know and understand the father's in me and I'm in the father. Well, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. So he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John never did a miracle, but everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. You can't shut down those whom God draws, right? Doesn't matter if he goes 18, 20 miles away, they're still going to find him. What's the point of the message? Do you know the voice of God? He keeps saying over and over, the reason why you have such a problem with me is you're not one of mine. 
But the reason why you would receive, the reason why you would long for, the reason why you would hope for, the reason why it would bug you to be away from me is because you are mine. And I have called you and I do know you and you do know me and you know that you are drawn to me and you want to be with me. But those of you that have no interest in me and think that I'm an irritant to you, it's because you're not mine. Do you know the voice of God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Is it a growing relationship with God? Do you know him more today than you knew him yesterday? Do you long to be with him? Do you want to hear what he has to say? Do you want to pour out your deepest secrets to him? Or are you still holding him at arm's length? Do you know the voice of God? That's the question, right? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your intense love. Father, that you would send your one and only son to protect us and shield us, die for us, forgive us. And Lord, there are some of us that don't think that's a big deal and we don't really care. I guess that means, Lord, we're not one of yours yet. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in our midst that are not of yours, that you would call them. That you would whisper to them, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would rescue them, that you would save them, that you would forgive them, that you'd pour out your mercy upon them as you have done on so many of us in this place. God, we are here to live for your glory and we want to know you more. We cannot handle a lifestyle where we know you kinda. We can't handle trying to live through this world detached from you, not hearing you, not being with you, not having the affirmation from you. And so God, would you break through our hardened hearts, break through our distracted minds and communicate what you desire that we might live for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.